This program was produced at KUSP Central Coast Public Radio and KUSP.org. And welcome to the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Our subject today, Iran Then and Now. Then meaning 30 years ago, when a youthful uprising led to the fall of the Shah and eventually the rise of the Islamic Republic. And now, when young people are again leading the fight for reform, I'll talk to the Iranian filmmaker Nahid Sarvastani, who participated in the 1979 revolution and who watches this revolt with a mix of hope and apprehension. And I'll discuss today's new generation of Iranian activists with Iranian-American student Naveed Mansouri. He's been tracking developments in Iran and studying the role of social networking technologies. That's all coming up. Part one of our show today, a conversation with filmmaker Nahid Persun Sarvastani. Her films include a number of critically praised documentaries about Iran, like Prostitution Behind the Veil and Four Wives, One Man. Her latest is The Queen and I. The film started out as a portrait of Iran's former empress, Farah Pahlavi, but it came to include the ambivalent filmmaker herself, a one-time anti-Shah revolutionary who finds herself befriending the late Shah's wife. It's a complicated story that reflects in some ways the conflicted, tragic history of modern Iran. The film is airing now on HBO, and it'll be shown later this week at the Los Angeles Film Festival. Let's go to the interview. Are you following the events in Iran right yes, now? Yes. Closely? I think every Iranian following <laughs> news now because we are so... I mean, it's our country. You know, we have to do that. So we hope that everything will be changing uh, in Iran. Mm-hmm. The people have been waiting for this time, for that moment, so we have to do what we can to change the situation in Iran. Do the demonstrations um, on the streets of Tehran today remind you at all of those back oh, in yes. 1978 oh. and 79? Yeah, yeah, it does. Uh, and all the, those pictures uh, when people... Uh, destroy things uh, on the street because you become aggressive when um, when you don't have uh, freedom we, when you don't allow to say what you think about the regime. Uh, so I, I see all those pictures like everything we did in Iran 30 years ago. But now it's worse because uh, because uh, at that time when the military came and. Uh, mm, Forbidden us to to do the the demonstration. You could see they, that they are from military, but now there are a lot, a lot of people with uh, normal clothes in the demonstration. That people don't know that uh, they can kill you at the same. They have knife in their hand and can stick in uh, in people during the demonstration. So it's horrible. In 1978 and 79, during the uh, Iranian Revolution, you were on the streets. Oh, yes, every day. And you were facing troops with guns and tanks. Uh, yeah, yeah we, we did. And, uh, yes, and at that time, you, where you are very young, you are a rebel, you want to change, you want to change the, the world, and uh, you don't think about your safety. Uh, so, yes, we did, like people and young people uh, today. But you feel as though it's more dangerous now than it was then. 
Yeah, it's more dangerous because they are uh, they are very very aggressive and they uh, they don't uh, let anybody do anything. Uh, so uh, yeah, they are more they are so violent uh, against people. They they hit children on the streets, uh, women. So uh, it's horrible. So you're talking about the Basij, for instance, the the, yeah. the militia. Yeah. Uh, in plain clothes, not in uniforms, that in- yeah. infiltrate crowds and attack them sometimes. Or exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, when you were demonstrating, um, what was your hope for Iran at that time? Uh, uh, I was um, a member of a communist uh, organization, and my hope was that Iran uh, can have freedom. Uh, my hope was that that uh, all people can say what they. Uh, want to do against the regime or, uh, you know, Iran uh, was very rich and is very rich, but people cannot have anything. They, the regime takes all money. So we hope that uh, people can have um, a, a normal life because there were very poor people at that time, uh, but uh, a very small group could live like a king and queen. So we want better life mm-hmm. for our people. You were not um, hoping for an Islamic state, is that no, right? No, yes, it's right. So, uh, you know, they were uh, the communist organizations, we were uh, a lot, and we were the majority. Uh, and the Islamic group, they, they were only a small group, but... Um, uh, they kidnapped our revolution, and it was uh, painful. So we, we couldn't um, believe that they came to the power. Uh, but at the same time, we, we, uh, they promised us, the Khomeini promised us freedom and democracy. So uh, we say, okay, welcome. And then later, of course, uh, Khomeini and uh, the Islamic clergy gained control. Yeah. Um, and, and what happened to activists like yourself? Uh, they, they, you know, we, because we, we fighted for democracy and freedom, but when we didn't get it, we continued to, to be activists uh, and um, fought against the new regime. Uh, so they... they uh, they took a lot of people, a lot of uh, members, um, and uh, put them in jail. And uh, after just one year, they they began to execute people. Uh, so uh, a lot of yeah, very very young people were executed because of very very small um, reason that they were against the regime. Mm-hmm. And my brother was only 17 years when uh, he was uh, executed. Your brother's name was? Rostam. Rostam, and you dedicate your latest film to him? Yes. And he was he was executed by? By the Islamic regime. For? For, for nothing, for, for to be uh, against the regime. And he helped economic, uh, the, the organization, uh, a little more because he worked a lot and gave all his money to the communist organization to can continue the, the uh, activism. So he was uh, he didn't do so much 
So it, it was only against regime. And you had to flee Iran? Yeah, I did it uh, after six months when they executed my brother because I was in uh, fled in the country in six months uh, from city to another city all the time. But in the end, when they executed my brother, uh, I had to leave the uh, country. And uh, yeah, I did it. Did you think you, you might also be imprisoned or executed? Oh, I, I was sure that I could because they um, tortured my brothers and uh, to know where I live. Um, oh, really? Yeah. So, you know, I felt very guilty uh, when they executed my brother because I knew that if they could take me, they maybe uh, could let them be. So uh, it was very hard to me to... Uh, to be to to know that uh, so when uh, and I I had to I have to leave the country with uh, very uh, yeah it was hard it was very hard for me. Hmm. Yeah. You were in exile for a long time then. You couldn't go back. Uh, no, I cannot. I I couldn't go back. But I I did after seventeen years. I went back to Iran. Uh, because it was when um, uh, Khatami was in the power, so it was easier to go back to Iran for us. Uh, they they um, took my passport, of course, and they uh, and one they asked me a lot of questions: what I do uh, in in Sweden, if I'm activist uh, anymore, or like that. But but they let me go that time, and I went back to Iran many times, and I made a lot of films about Iran. But uh, three years ago, when I uh, went back to Iran um, to complete it, my film Four Wives, One Man, uh, they uh, took me uh, and put me in house arrest uh, because of an- another film I did, Prostitution Behind the Wheel. Uh, yes. Yeah, it was against the regime. And, uh, uh, yeah, it was very scary because the interrogation was so, uh, so bad. They were so aggressive against me. Uh, and they pro- they forced me to sign a document that uh, I never will uh, make make another film about Iran, and, and I did it. I signed it, uh, uh, but at the same time I planned my next film. <laughs> <laughs> so what did I do? I wanted to go back to Sweden. <laughs> so uh, if they knew that I am going to make a film about the Queen, so they wouldn't let me go. No, that would not have been very popular with them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But you had made this film, Prostitution Behind the Veil, a documentary about uh, uh, some young prostitutes yeah. in, in Tehran. In, uh, uh, and uh, they thought that cast uh, an unfavorable light on Iran. Um, yeah. So they put you under house arrest and, and made you sign this document. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about the, the, the film that you then made. This is The Queen and I. This is the film that has... Uh, just premiered in the U.S. this year at Sundance and, and is now on HBO and um, about to be shown at the Los Angeles Film Festival. Yeah. This is a film about both the former empress of Iran, Farah Pahlavi, the, the wife of the Shah, and it's about you too. Yeah. Yeah, uh, it wasn't planned to put me in the film from beginning. I wanted uh, to make a film about her and her situation in, uh, outside the country, but... Uh, at the same time, I had so mixed feeling about uh, uh, making a film about my enemy, my former enemy. And so uh, I put me in the film, uh, and 
I, I had so much uh, uh, questions uh, I wanted to ask her, but at the same time, I, I didn't want uh, lose the, the uh, chance to make the film. Um, uh, all the time, it was mixed feeling during the filming, during the editing. Uh, after that, when the film was shown in uh, different festivals and TV, and people, I was afraid that people take it in wrong way. Uh, but we became friends uh, during the time, and all those tough questions I had, I planned to uh, ask her. I couldn't do that because uh, it was Shah. It, everything, uh, all those questions, it could answer be answered by, by Shah, not the, not Farah Pahlavi. Uh-huh. Uh, so it, it was very, uh, yeah special film. So was this the first film in which you were not behind the camera, but in front of the camera? Yeah, it is. So what we get to see is you meeting Farah Pahlavi and, and talking not only about her own life and about being the queen of Iran, mm. but talking about the film itself. We get to see you negotiating uh, whether you can continue to make this film mm. And uh, we hear a voiceover of you talking about your problem. You, who opposed the Shah, uh, who fought against him, demonstrated against him, and someone who was very much opposed to the whole idea of monarchy, yes? Mm, yeah. Meeting with this this uh, person who still is addressed by many people as Her Majesty. Yes, yes, she yeah. is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it, was, it, it was strange. Every day when I went to her uh, house, uh, I, sometimes I wanted to go back to my hotel, don't film anymore. But at the same time, I was very curious how everything, uh, the, the development, uh, I wanted to know a lot of things about her. Uh, and I was very happy because we became so close to each other. She um, she told me a lot of things about her that uh, nobody else uh, knew about it uh, a lot of things uh, which is not in the film but um, uh, she talked about it for me because for, uh, with me she wasn't queen she was a woman mm-hmm. a normal woman as me but as soon uh, the supporter and uh, another friends were there she was changed because for them she was a queen and she has to be a queen rest of uh, her life mm-hmm. So uh, I think for her, even for her, it's mixed uh, feeling uh, to be a normal woman at, at the same time a queen. Yeah. One of the, I should say that she um, she lives in Paris. She also has a home, I guess, in the United States. Yeah. In Washington, yeah. Uh, D.C. area. Yeah. Um, uh, one of the things I noticed at the beginning was when you first met her, you're dressed, it seems to me that you're dressed very casually for someone who's about to meet uh, royalty. Uh, yeah, I, I had uh, normal clothes, you know. My, uh, I, I had jeans, and uh, when I was there first time, uh, but uh, when she stopped me, uh, you know, after two weeks, she stopped me filming when she noticed that uh, I was a former revolutionary. Right. Uh, and um, uh, after six months, when I uh, when she let me go back again, so I think I have to do everything right uh, for continue filming. So I bought a lot of uh, clothes uh, that was 
good that was that fit <laughs> uh, to to meet the queen uh-huh. yes uh, but uh, after a while i couldn't be like that because i was a former communist and a communist doesn't <laughs> has special clothes uh, very comfortable clothes uh, but uh, i saw that uh, I was happy that uh, she took me in her house um, in spite of how I was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seemed to me that um, that you didn't treat her like someone who is superior. You treated her as though you were meeting someone who is equal, and she treated you like someone who is equal. Mm-hmm. In the film, at least, I didn't see her behave toward you uh, like you were um, of lower status? No, no, she didn't. She didn't. But um, And I couldn't uh, behave her like a queen because a lot of times I uh, call uh, her you. I, I, I couldn't say a queen all the time as her other friends did. Uh, or your majesty. I couldn't say your <laughs> majesty because it wasn't majesty for me. She, she was a, a woman like me because I uh, respect all people. It doesn't matter if she has been a queen or a prostituted woman. Uh, they are same for me. So I couldn't um, say her majesty uh, in the beginning. But after six months when uh, I came back again, so I tried uh-huh. To do that, uh-huh. <laughs> but people uh, who support her, they um, accuse me that uh, I don't respect her. I should say Her Majesty all the time. Well, one thing that the film makes clear is that there are these Iranians who are royalists uh, who live outside Iran now, but who still are nostalgic for the monarchy yeah. and still revere her as royalty. Yeah. And, uh, of course, you're not that kind of person at all. So there was pressure from that side, I assume, to, to treat her mm. with a great deal more respect. Mm. I imagine there was pressure from another side yeah. to not be doing this film about her at all. Why give her any attention at all? Mm-hmm. I was, you know, between two uh, kind of people. Uh, my the friends, my people, and uh, Queen's people. Yeah. They... Uh, I, I couldn't be like them, and uh, but I was surprised that even they um, uh, respect me because uh, the queen uh, accepted everything I did. So they, um, I don't know how it was because I know that kind of people who are very rich and uh, has power, and they don't respect people like me. Mm-hmm. At that time. I had a camera, he, uh, and, and Farah Pahlavi, she uh, behaved me very well, so they uh, had to, to be a friend with me. Why did Farah Pahlavi, uh, why do you think that she consented to this film, even after she found out that you were a former anti-Shah activist, a revolutionary? Even after, and it's a later point in the film, she finds out that maybe some of the things that you're putting in, in your early edits of the film are not are, are critical of her and of the monarchy and yet she continues uh, I think uh, as she said to me because she um, I am an, an Iranian filmmaker and uh, I wrote to her that 
I uh, filmed a lot of uh, things and I have a lot of material. So um, please let me come back again and film you. Uh, it was hard for her to accept uh, to take me back, but when I sent a trailer to her and showed her that uh, it's not uh, against her, the film, I like her, and the film is not against her. So um, she, uh, I, I think after 30 years, uh, somebody comes and wants to, to make a film about her. It's good for her. So uh, it was also uh, another reason that she and it's true because people call her all the time and say that uh, the that the film was very good very positive uh, and uh, i think in 30 years she maybe maybe was forgotten for a lot of people but now she is a queen again mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. so it was uh, maybe a, another reason. Mm. Um, one feeling I got from watching Fera Pallavi in your film is that she takes this um, this role mm. as a responsibility, as a duty to the, as she sees it, to the people of Iran. And it's not always easy. Um, it involves a fair amount of sacrifice. Mm. Do you think that's the case? Uh, yeah, but. Uh, she she feels responsibility for the people, and I yeah. think she she wants to go uh, to her country like a queen again. So mm. it's both it's for her sake and for people's sake. I think. Uh huh. Yeah. The the royalists, the people you show who have a fairly worshipful attitude toward her, um, these are wealthy people. They're living outside of Iran. I'm sure they all left uh, at the time of the revolution. Yeah. Do you think there's any? Similar sentiment inside Iran, people who would like to see uh, a new uh, monarchy, a uh, return of a Shah of some kind or of the queen? Yes, I think so, because uh, uh, she received a lot of paper from Iran, a lot of email and uh, uh, letter from Iran. And people uh, support her, but, uh, you know, Iran is very big. 70 million mm. people live there, so... Uh, I don't know how many, how much, uh, how many people support her, but there is, mm. there is. So uh, and outside, the, the only um, negative with people outside the country that uh, I noticed that they didn't change anything um, compared to 30 years ago. Mm. So Farah Pahlavi, she knows that it was wrong. A lot of things uh, Shah did was wrong, but. Uh, the supporter, they don't accept it. They don't, they say no. Everything was good. Mm. So it get. I be worried if they come back to to the power. If if it's Farah who has the power, it's okay. But people around her, I don't know. Mm. It, it, you know, you said uh, a little while ago as we were talking that you were hesitant to challenge her and uh, ask hard questions initially mm. uh, about what the Shah did, about, you know, yeah. uh, about the revolution and, and why it happened. Mm. But you eventually do ask some of those questions uh, later in the film. Yeah. And she justifies some of what happened mm. in a couple of different ways. Yeah. One way is to say, well, we were a lot better than what came after mm-hmm. uh, the Islamic Republic, mm. you know. You know, you lived through the Shah's regime, 
and you've observed the Islamic Republic. Is there yeah. any basis for that? Was the Shah any better? Uh, yeah, of yeah. course, of course, he was. He was better. He was. He himself was better, but I think uh, it was other people who decided uh, what uh, he did um, in that time. Uh, so he, if if we let him. Um, because uh, I show even in the film that uh, he asked people to for, uh, forgive him for everything he did. So if we gave him a chance to continue, so it could be better. But uh-huh. but it was too late. It was too late to to do that because we were revolutionary. We were we wanted something better than that. But uh, of course, it was much better if. If we knew that uh, the Islamic Republic uh, will come to the power, uh, we never do the revolution. Mm. Because when I I'm uh, thinking back about that time, everything was so peaceful in our family, for example, or people we knew that we could sit together without any problem and talk about a lot of things. We could go outside without have veil. We could have fun. Uh, we hadn't any freedom to to say what we think about the Shah, but uh, we, we, they didn't took us if we laughed, if we play music, and it was another sort of freedom uh, at the same time. But now, if you have, if you are in love, so you can be arrested. If uh, a, a woman has uh, sex without being married. She, she can be hanged. Uh, so you know, it's very private things is forbidden in Iran. They pay a lot uh, to people to spy other people. So you do, never know if your neighbor are with regime or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, yeah, it's very difficult time now. Now, you as a communist youth, though, um, you could have been arrested by the Shah's secret police, Savak, and you, yeah, could, yeah. you could have been tortured or yeah. imprisoned. Uh, but you're saying that the, the the real difference is that at least you could exercise other individual rights. Yes, yes. Aside from, from yeah. criticizing the regime. Yeah. Um, getting back to your relationship to Farah Pahlavi, uh, there's a point in the film where you, you describe to her why you fought the Shah, why you fought the monarchy. And you tell her about your your growing up in a poor family, um, struggling to survive, while the um, the aristocracy had nearly all the wealth. And she says, and I think it's a very very telling moment. She says, "Well, you should have just written me a letter. I, I, I would have helped you out." <laughs> <laughs> I know. What can I say? <laughs> well, yeah. In the film, you don't say anything. Uh, no, I couldn't say anything. <laughs> Yeah, this is this is kind of a central idea of the monarchy, isn't it? The the, the benign leader um, showering grace on a few lucky individuals. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you said um, that uh, your revolution, the 1979 revolution, was kidnapped or hijacked by the fundamentalists. Yeah. Do you worry at all that um, this current uprising, um, some people are calling it a revolution, a green revolution, could lead to unintended consequences like the 79 you know, revolution? Now, if you see Mousavi, uh, the other, uh, the green leader, uh, he is maybe a little more better than 
Ahmadinejad, but people uh, go out and demonstrate for freedom. Uh, he is uh, only a symbol for people to have uh, something to do. So uh, if if I, I'm not sure what happened because they fight for their freedom, but they haven't any leader, any good leader. Mm. Uh, Musavi himself executed a lot of young people during the 80s. Uh, but now he is uh, he has become a symbol against the current uh, regime uh, and i think it's something uh, that almost all exiled iranian um, have waited and hoped for and even iranian in the country uh, people in iran are willing to risk their lives for a change uh, and uh, they can die for for that because they say they don't lose anything to do that. But I'm not sure what will happen if um, uh, next time. Uh, I'm not sure because Musavi, <laughs> to die for him, I don't, I'm not sure if mm. it's right. If he were to take power, could you go back to Iran? No. No, you still no. couldn't go back. No, because she, he is uh, one of, there is, you know, Mullah, she, he, Khamenei, the leader of Iran, they, uh, have, uh, he support even him. Mm-hmm. So, no, I cannot go back to mm-hmm. What are your plans for your next film? Um, I cannot uh, talk about it, but it's about Iran again. I thought so. <laughs> <laughs> well, Nahid, uh, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you very much. Okay. Okay, bye-bye. That was Nahid Persson Sarvistani. She's a documentary filmmaker based in Sweden. Her latest film is called The Queen and I, and it's now showing on HBO and screens later this week at the Los Angeles Film Festival. This is Central Coast Public Radio, KUSP. The show is the 7th Avenue Project. I'm the host, Robert Polly. Like many a popular protest, Iran's current uprising has produced its share of protest music. And here's an example. It's called Eval Eval, and it celebrates the green movement. Green, by the way, is the campaign color of opposition candidate Mir Hussein Mousavi, but it's come to symbolize a broader push for reform in Iran. That song was sent to me by Naveed Mansouri, who I'll talk to next. He's an Iranian-American student who just finished his junior year at UC Santa Cruz. Naveed is studying politics there, 
and researching the role of social networking technologies, like Twitter and Facebook, in the Iranian demonstrations. He and UCSC politics professor Roger Sherman recently published an op-ed piece on that subject in the British newspaper The Guardian. Naveed grew up in California but speaks fluent Farsi, that's Persian. He's been to Iran several times and is in close touch with friends and family there. We spoke Friday just after the speech by Iran's supreme leader, Ali Khamenei, in which Khamenei stood by the disputed re-election of President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad and warned against further protests. Naveed had spent the night posting translations and analyses of Khamenei's speech on Twitter, and here's what he had to say about it. I think he realizes that the country is on the brink of a civil war along many different lines, uh, not just generational. He knows that between the gender gaps, between minority ethnicities, between minority religions, that this country is severely divided, and the last few days have proven that this is correct. And, um, and he knows that the majority of the people who are out on the streets right now do have the potential of splitting this country apart and breaking down this regime. So that speech for him was very important. <laughs> it, it, the, future, the future of the regime was basically uh, in his hands, and the way he's seeking to solve it is, is obviously with fear, which um, I think, as Machiavelli has taught us, doesn't always work. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll see in the coming days, I guess, as to whether that those warnings translate into action and uh, he's able to suppress this uprising. But I want to get a better sense of this, uh, this movement, what I just called an uprising, from you. Uh, you're in much closer touch than I am with, with people who are participating. Give us just a, a, a sort of um, brief portrait of where this is coming from and, and who's driving it. Okay. Um, I think that the best way to answer that would be go, to go back to the Iran-Iraq War, actually. Wow, all the, uh, all the way back to the 1980s. Exactly. Uh, and the, after the Iran-Iraq War, um, the country had realized that a lot of its population were basically being uh, extinguished. Uh, they, they started up a program telling families to have, have children. Um, this, this plan worked. There, was a, there is a very distinct Iranian uh, youth boom. 60% of the nation falls between the, age, the, dem, uh, the demographic ages of zero to, uh, I think, around 29. Mm-hmm. Um, not to say, it would, be, it would be wrong to say that that 60% of the nation is everybody that's rising up. But the ones that are politically active are between 15 and 29. That is 30% of the nation, or a little bit over one-third of the nation, actually. This is exactly what comprises the movement. These are the kids that are in the universities. These are the kids who have basically been raised in a system that isn't, doesn't exactly resonate with what they see, see as fit with their, with their reality. Uh-huh. Um, if I could jump in here. Um, you're saying that there was a kind of state-driven um, baby boom, and, and you implied, I think, when you said Iran-Iraq war, that the reason that people were encouraged to have kids was to provide cannon fodder, <laughs> so to speak? Actually, yes. They, um, actually, yes, that's actually... I, well, here, I'll check, my, I'll check myself and say that <laughs> that's one interpretation or uh-huh. one analysis, uh-huh. but um, it's not actually an extreme one, and, it's, and it, it, does, it does make sense in the context of the situation that they, they, needed, they needed more militia and they were running out. They knew that these conflicts were not going to end. The kids that we see now today are basically the result of this program to a, to a great oh. majority. That's really interesting. Of course, a lot of people uh, attribute the uh, 
countercultural revolution, if I could call it that, in the U.S. to 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 our own baby boom, uh, post-war baby boom. Uh, and are you drawing a parallel there? Uh, of course. I, I mean, I, I think I think a good parallel also, uh, to draw is between um, between 2009 uh, in Iran and 1968. Um, I think that uh, I think that May 1968 in France is a perfect analysis or a perfect parallel for what's going on in Iran, mm-hmm. where uh, universe, 20,000 to 50,000 university students began protesting because of these deeply embedded gripes they had uh, with their nation. You had the uh, totalitarian leader, or so to speak, ruling with an iron fist, Charles de Gaulle, <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> And uh, what ended up happening? The, the 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 university protests ended up being viral. They were contagious. Uh, Nine million of the the workers ended up protesting. And basically, um, everybody the the protests were quelled. But what happened in the future? The the France that we see now is the movement that we saw in 1968. And everybody is saying that this green revolution could could fail. Well, what I think we've seen is that over one-third of this nation, or the 60% of this nation that is young, and the majority of them that, that are the Green Revolution, are going to be the future of the Islamic Republic of Iran. The revolution, you know, it, it doesn't have to be uh, immediate and bloody. Uh-huh. So, so, yeah, I mean, it may be quashed, um, and we'll see in the coming days and weeks and months, but you think it'll it'll linger on and transformation will occur as a result of partly as a result of this large population bulge uh, of people under thirty. Yeah, I think it's a very pragmatic way to look at the seeds of a uh, of a state's own destruction. Do you think, based on 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 the direct evidence that you have talking to people, that those involved in these demonstrations have a really coherent idea of what they'd like to see in place of the current regime? Um, are they, for instance, opposed to a kind of theocracy, fundamentalist uh, Islamic Republic, or are they okay with that and just want to see a somewhat more moderate version uh, that maybe someone like Musavi would bring? Yeah, I think that one thing that a uh, Western viewer should keep in mind is that the trajectory that may seem ideal for us. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, that uh, in a revolution, one that possibly would lead to a secular liberal democracy, uh, may not may not fit the rubric of a population that's ninety percent Shia. Mm-hmm. And an- another thing to point out is that no, there's probably not one uh, a unified consensus on what the desired outcome is. But obviously, this is a manifest form of. Um, all of the things that these kids see uh, as wrong with the regime. And um, what, what's going to end up happening, I think, will disappoint somebody who thinks that this revolution is going to lead to what we're conditioned to think revolutions lead to. You, um, mean, a, you mean a Western-style liberal democracy? Exactly. It's going, Musavi in particular, is not a radical shift away from Ahayajad, especially if you're coming from... Um, uh, you know, you know, from a Western point of view, but uh, he is reform. He is what the youth right now want, and it could, in many cases, be seen as a close-in vote. But it's at least, it's at least hope. You have to give this large demographic some uh, a little bit of light uh, to to know that they can 
they can have an effect or an influence on the direct politics around them uh, without being coerced into just giving up their, you know, their vote or just their agency to, to the ruling powers. Is it your sense, though, that they think of Musavi as the lesser of the evils and long-term they'd like to see or would just, you know, be naturally inclined toward something like uh, a liberal democracy? Or do they really like exactly the kind of position that Musavi represents, tending toward the strict Islamic republic as opposed to, you know, liberal democracy? Um, that's always a hard one to interpret when you're from, when you're from a Western perspective. I think, I, I do know that it is a close-pin vote for a lot of people, which means that, you know, which means that they, they're seeing Musavi as the, the lesser of two evils. We, sh- we should explain the term close-pin. In other words, you hold your nose because it's not exactly a great choice. Exactly. Now, now, looking back to that other um, revolution uh, in, in 78-79 in Iran, of course, young students were central to that as well. And there was a, a coalition at that time, I guess, between people who might have imagined something more liberal and fundamentalists who wanted something far, far more conservative. Um, and as we know, <laughs> the conservatives got their way, and the liberals uh, were, were deeply disappointed, uh, if, if not driven out of the country or, 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 or killed, you know, in some right. cases. Right. Um, is there any sense uh, among the, the young people you've been in touch with, first of all, they must be aware of what happened in 78, 79, and do they have a sense that this could backfire in the same way that that did for those progressive students? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, the first of all, the, uh, the Iranian, Iranian youth, <laughs> are some of the most politically savvy um, uh, people I've ever met, uh, much more than the average American. Uh, they, know, they know their politics back and forth, and they know their history back and forth. Mm-hmm. Um, and and they're, they're keen enough, I think, to be able to draw parallels. But, yeah, I do sense that they are, they are afraid that this could backfire, and they are very cynical. Um, and this cynicism obviously drives from just a lifetime of uh, basically being repressed. But this is the first time that they're, uh, or this is one of the, the biggest times since, since the 1979 revolution, they're hitting the street. So obviously something has changed. Yes, they're cynical. Yeah, they think that um, such revolutionary shifts could, could lead them to in a worse direction. Um, but... Uh, I think that from what we're seeing right now, um, I think that they finally have come to realize that they can change. Um, they can change the regime that they're under, and uh, right now I think they, they want to. Uh-huh. Um, uh, and I'm putting you in a position here, Naveed, of, of being an all-purpose pundit, and I know that um, you, know, you might want to just uh, decline some of these questions, you know. If, if you I'll answer what I know, and if you, want, if you want details, you can always ask as well, because I know on some of them I'm being general. Okay. Um, um, you know, again, harking back to 1979 and that revolution, people who, who watched uh, those events unfold got to see a bunch of students um, and others who, who seemed to be very brave and willing to sacrifice an extraordinary amount, uh, marching unarmed toward the tanks and the gun barrels of the Shah's troops. Um, and, and they were killed in, in many cases. And, uh, of course, we hear a lot, we in the West hear a lot about a kind of culture of martyrdom in Shia Islam and in Iran. 
such that people were willing to die for that cause, and people were later willing to die in huge numbers in the Iran-Iraq war, just, you know, in human wave attacks on the Iraqis. Right. Um, do, you, do you hear that same sense of willingness to die, willingness to sacrifice this time around? I think that we should, I think I should clear up a definition, which is that of, um, that of jihad right now. Uh, uh, of what? Uh, of jihad. Okay. Uh, jihad does not necessarily uh, mean giving up your life for a cause. Uh, it, could, it, it has many different levels, and one of them can mean um, an internal jihad. Right. One of the, one of the uh, translations is struggle. Exactly. It is pure struggle. And the struggle for the youth could be that they're trying to recon- reconcile an identity that they share with the, uh, with the same age uh, people around them with a Islamic Republic that doesn't necessarily hold those same convictions. Um, would they be willing to die? When I went to Iran uh, two years ago, um, <laughs> my cousin actually asked me, uh, he, was, he asked me, Naveed, is there anything you would die for? And I, um, I'm, I was taken aback by the question. Uh, I didn't actually have an answer. And uh, he said, I, you know, I returned the question on him, and he said that, there's a famous poet, Hafiz, and he gave me an image. He said that there's a butterfly that is flying around the flame of a candle, and it's attracted to the flame of the candle, and as, it, as it's uh, flying around it, it gets closer and closer. These concentric circles start getting smaller and smaller, and he said that the most beautiful moment in the butterfly's life was the moment that it met the flame, and he said that every person should have a flame, uh, should have a flame that they would be willing to die for. Now, this imagery to him was not bound to Islam. It was, just, it, was, it was bound to something completely outside of that. But the point was that these people are actually, I believe, willing to give up their lives, not necessarily anything linked to religion. I saw, I've seen multiple Twitters. I've, I've talked to multiple people who are saying that they, are willing, they have one life to live and they're willing to give it up for, uh, for liberty or for freedom. And um, and this is this opportunity has been given for them, and I think that we're going to find that a majority of them are willing to put their necks on the line to make sure that the future of the country looks better. Of course, we'll we'll be watching closely, but uh, if if Hamani follows through with some of his implied threats, it could be bloody. Yeah, we should keep our fingers crossed that this revolution is velvet, and uh, but I don't think that's necessarily going to be the case. Mm. I want to talk to you a little bit about your research. You've been um, working uh, with um, UCSC politics professor uh, Roger Shernman on the role of social networking in in organizing. And of course, that's been a it's almost been the topic du jour in the press. The press loves the idea of Twitter and Facebook, uh, etc., being uh, instrumental to all of this. What, what's your sense of that? Is that is that the truth? Do you think? I think that. Um I think that in the Islamic Republic of Iran in July, uh, July 2009, that yes, uh, Facebook, Twitter, and social networking sites have proven to be uh, an integral source uh, of basically communication and uh, distribution of information, uh, and, and even so for organization. Um, but obviously, both sides have this. Uh, technology and it's become a conflict basically between the regime and the and the youth or the green wave to figure out how to bypass each other or filter each other. 
Uh, Iran has the highest number of blogs per capita uh, for any country in the world, and um, yeah, and uh, Farsi-written blogs are among the most popular in the world as well. And um, these are extremely tech-savvy people. Um, they know how to use the technology that they have, and they're definitely using it. Uh, to help them out in any way possible in these uh, in, in these days, we we know the youth are tech savvy. Does does the regime have anybody um, who's equally tech savvy, or are they pretty much behind the times? <laughs> Actually, I don't know. Uh, I know that they're they're good at filtering um, and <laughs> censoring. Iran has one of the actually strictest censors uh, 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 anywhere in the world. Um, they're hypersensitive, so they know what to censor and they're quick to do it. As for technology goes, though, um, I, they're obviously finding it very difficult. You can filter the Internet, but once it comes down to proxies and uh, once it comes down to Twitter, which is completely decentralized, you can shoot off a Twitter from anything from a cell phone to a computer to a laptop to uh, from basically from multiple different venues. Uh, so Why can't the regime block Simply block Twitter.com. Um, because it can be, uh, it can, the filter can be bypassed. Not everyone uses, especially the young who know how to bypass the filters. They don't use them. I went to Iran. I did not, I was not bound by the filter while I was there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> in, in fact, uh, I, I can also answer my own question a little bit by saying that, you know, you don't need Twitter.com to see a Twitter feed. Twitter feeds can be displayed all over the place, so. Yeah, uh, the Islamic Republic has blocked Twitter.com and Facebook, Mosavi's websites, uh, multiple websites. The New York Times. The New York Times is not is not is not liked very much by the Islamic Republic, apparently. But that doesn't mean that um, articles uh, get distributed and read. And, and you mentioned proxy servers again for our audience. Um, it might be good to explain how that works. Um, I, I Uber technically, I probably wouldn't be able to describe it, but I do know that um, people are able to set up um, sites or just venues on the Internet that information can basically stream through. It's, definitely, it's, it's like through an unfiltered website, which um, the, way that, uh, the way that the regime could basically or would have to stop this is now by trying to find these, uh, these different servers and try to block them. But it becomes much more difficult than just having one centralized base. So, for instance, if I set up a website here uh, based in California that's, uh, say, death to deathtoachmedinejad.com, uh, naturally the regime would block that. But yeah, you probably wouldn't make it very far. Yeah, I probably wouldn't get very far. But on the other hand, you could set up a little proxy server for me, give it a different name, and display exactly those things that I was, I was putting on the death to Ahmadinejad site. Uh, and, and so could many other people, and they could keep doing that constantly, uh, one step ahead of the censors. Exactly. I'm not... I'm not uh I'm not tech-savvy enough to set up my own proxy server, but I know that it's possible uh, by just anybody with um, that, that, kind of, uh, that kind of skill. And uh, actually, uh, many people in the past few days have been asking, uh, uh, quote-unquote, all geeks, uh, to uh, set up proxies for, for Iranians to use uh, in, these, in, these really, in these important days. I, I probably didn't technically explain it um, perfectly, but the, the gist is essentially... Proxy server is an intermediary that allows you to connect to it. Uh, the proxy has not yet been blocked because the regime, um, you know, in this case, wouldn't know about it. 
and through that proxy server, you can get to NewYorkTimes.com or uh, any number of other sites. Exactly. Yeah. And you said you've been using Facebook um, messaging as well, rather than, say, email. Yeah, I, I found that, I found that uh, my cousins in particular but I, and a lot of my friends over there are using Facebook um, uh, on a daily basis uh, to get information and communicate with their friends and communicate with the outside world. Um, so I, I, send a, I send somebody a message over Facebook and I find that I get a response. In a, in a pretty, like, timely manner. Do you know whether the government um, uh, eavesdroppers could be tracking those messages and, and uh, reading that content? From what I know about Facebook, the only people able to read uh, the messages are Facebook employees themselves. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, so it's basically it's locked up within their server. I think um, hacking Facebook, um, I'm not sure. I'm I'm not sure if that's possible or not, hmm. but hmm. I'm sure uh, I'm Facebook, Facebook and Twitter and these sites that have realized they're being used a lot in the past few days have gone out of their way um, to basically accommodate um, accommodate the Iranians who are dependent on it. Uh, for example, Facebook just uh, yesterday, I believe, came out with a Farsi translation of their website. Um, Google has come out with a, Farsi, a Persian translator, finally. I have to wait for protests to break out to get one of those. And uh, and um, Twitter, I think, was going to shut down to do maintenance, but I think I think it's realized that it wouldn't be the greatest idea to do that. Um, I want to talk about the the attitudes of uh, Iranian expatriates and uh, immigrants uh, here in the U.S. and and, and second generation Iranian Americans such as yourself. Um, I assume you're in touch with a lot of people here who are following events in Iran. Uh, I am. And and what is their take? Um, on what's happening and their hopes for an outcome? Well, focusing in on Keeley uh, expatriates okay. uh, of the immigrants, <laughs> yeah. um, they are obviously very cynical of the regime. Uh, and they know, and I think to an extent many of them know the history. Um, they know who Mosavi is and where, where Mosavi comes from. But they have jumped on the, the green bandwagon. Um, there's actually a protest in my uh, in my hometown today uh, going to be taking place. And, Which is where? Uh, uh, San Luis Obispo, and um, they uh, they they have the green, and they are uh, and they are ready to basically um, to follow with these with this green wave. But they are not for Mossadi, which is interesting. Or a lot of the people, uh, a lot of the people that I've been in touch with. Are advocates of the youth uh, of the green wave, but are not advocates of Mossadegh. They don't see him as a, the right candidate. What they are, what they are uh, supporting, what they are protesting for, is that the will of the young generation gets uh, gets answered. So, uh, the green movement for them, I think, symbolizes more so, you know, liberty, freedom, and that these and that the youth um, get their way. Um, so, cynicism, yes, but support for the youth. Um, also, yes. <laughs> um, you're saying that a large portion of the Iranian community doesn't really support Musavi, but uh, he's the best thing going at this moment? Yeah. Before Ahmadinejad came to power in, what year was it? Um, it was like, it was 2000-something. 2004, maybe? Well, before he came to power in the 2000s, um, there was, you know, supposedly a, um, a more moderate regime in place. 
and, and for a time there was uh, a general softening, uh, a perceived softening in, in, in Iranian uh, policies under Rafsanjani and then Khatami. Right. Um, from your perspective, w- was that the case? Was that more moderate? Was it uh, more open society then? Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, I I remember when Ahmadinejad was going to be elected that there was there was slight fear. Um, he would could be, because he was mayor of Tehran and people people knew people knew who he was and uh, and uh, what his convictions were. Um, when he yeah and when the elections were taking place, I think I remember being told that he was he was the type of person that would have, for example, you know, women on one side of the street and men on the other. Um, um yeah so i think it was more so that in relation to Khatami and Ahmadinejad uh Ahmadinejad was a hardliner but i wouldn't um i wouldn't necessarily look at Ahmadinejad and Khatami and look at them as um as moderate candidates <laughs> <laughs> um, by the way, I've been saying Ahmadinejad, and I hear you pronouncing it differently. You is a real Farsi speaker. Why don't you give us a pronunciation lesson? Um, I have an accent, but it's Ahmadinejad. Ahmadinejad. Uh, yeah, close. That's as close as I'm going to get. <laughs> yeah, that was good, though. That was good. <laughs> Ahmadinejad, yeah. <laughs> so what are your plans, Naveed, going forward uh, with regard to um, Iranian politics uh, I assume you're going to continue to research social networking, yes? Right. Um, does that involve possibly going back there, or are you just going to sit by your computer here? Um, I think I, think I uh, you know, that's an interesting question, because I haven't exactly come to a decision myself. But, you know, it's become, it's become a more and more attractive idea for me to go and do um, hands-on research or field work, so to speak, um, I I am fascinated with the politics of that country, and um, I, I I would be I would be willing, and I would love to um, go there to do research. I love the country. I mean, um, out, outside of the uh, outside of the Islamic Republic or the regime, uh, the people are wonderful, and the, the 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 culture and the places and everything is uh, is wonderful. So it's a nice it's a nice place to be, um, but. Uh, but I, I definitely, I think I'm going to be continuing my, um, my research with social networking, and, I, and I'm pretty sure that, that I'm going to be immersed, as I am now, into the politics of the country. Well, Naveed, thanks very much for, for sharing this time with us today. Oh, uh, thank you for having me. Naveed Mansouri studies politics at the University of California, Santa Cruz. And for KUSP, I'm Robert Polly.